Hi, I'm Jennifer Johannesson, and you're listening to Matters of Engagement, a podcast examining issues at the intersection of health, healthcare, and society. So today we're doing something a little bit different. We're giving a shot at making video along with the podcast, so you can watch on our YouTube channel, or as always, you can listen in your favorite podcast app. This episode has two parts. We're first going to feature a short talk I gave at the Canadian Caregiving Summit in Ottawa a few weeks ago. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can see what that was all about. But my talk was specifically focused on caregiving and work, so my experiences as an extreme caregiver also trying to earn a living. So after that short recording, it's about 10 minutes, we'll then showcase the conversation that Emily and I had afterwards. It's an informal and unscripted discussion where we debrief on some of the things that I talked about and some of Emily's responses to it. Now, it was actually really interesting for me to reflect on my presentation and also talk with Emily about it because we've become such good friends over the course of making this podcast. So what you'll hear is the same kind of conversation we have in coffee shops as opposed to our heavily scripted usual episodes. So first up is the recording of my talk, and then please join Emily and I for our candid conversation afterwards. Hi. My name is Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me here today. My son Owen had cerebral palsy. He was also deaf, non-ambulatory, G-tube fed, incontinent, fully dependent for all aspects of daily living. For his complex care needs, he required extreme caregiving all his life. I borrow that term from my old friend Donna Thompson. Owen required 24-hour extreme caregiving until his death in 2010 at the age of 12. After Owen died, I embarked on a few projects, kind of to process everything that had happened. Now, one of those projects was to write my book, No Ordinary Boy. If you visit NoOrdinaryBoy.com, you can actually download the PDF of the book for free. And I'm mentioning that because it tells a much fuller version of our story than what I'm going to share now. And another project of mine was to earn a master's degree in bioethics. Now, the study of bioethics includes a number of things, like looking at the clinical encounters between doctors and patients, as well as evaluating health and healthcare policy. And a big focus of bioethics in both of those realms is thinking about scarce resource allocation, like who gets organs or emergency beds, and on what basis. So we're concerned with conceptions of fairness and justice. But another aspect of bioethics that we consider is the ways that health and healthcare impact our common societal project of supporting human flourishing. So, how do our health and healthcare experiences impact our ability, as individuals and together, to feel fulfilled and to support our families, to build community, and to pursue our own goals? Our topic today is caregiving and work, and there are many ways to think about this from a bioethics perspective. And the one I want to highlight is this. That work is, in our society, one of the very important ways that we as humans build our social networks. It's one of the ways we form our identities and how we contribute to society. It's how we earn money to enable us to do the things we want to do. And all of these things contribute to this idea of human flourishing. Okay, so that's work. Now, except for the money part, which is a big one, One might imagine that caregiving, even the extreme kind, offers the same thing. Ask any of us at this summit and you'll find that we build strong social networks with fellow caregivers, and indeed, our identities become shaped by our experiences. 
But in addition to the money part, there's still one more really big difference between work and extreme caregiving, and that is choice. I was a long-time round-the-clock caregiver to a child who was born with multiple severe disabilities, and I performed that role out of a profound sense of love and duty. And I think, as a result, Owen had a pretty wonderful go of things. But there was something I could never really confess until now. And it's that being an extreme caregiver was never what I had envisioned for my own life. And to be completely honest, for most of the time, it's really not what I wanted. And it also maybe didn't have to be that way. After Owen was born, I learned pretty quickly that our circumstances were seen by everyone around us, including the healthcare profession, as a personal tragedy. And that what we were grappling with was my family's problem and ours alone. I can see it now that I felt stuck in my role and, frankly, in my life. And while we did muddle through, my caregiving responsibilities took an immense toll on my own opportunity to flourish in the way I would have wanted. I abandoned my own personal priorities and ambitions in order to keep my son alive. And not only did he, of course, depend on me to do that, the healthcare system did too. For me to access anything available to us through community or systemic supports required an absurd amount of effort. I was endlessly having to prove that he was disabled enough to receive services. I even had to find my own flow-through agencies to manage money that Owen was entitled to. I had to find creative ways to cobble together a paid support network so I could just somehow grab moments of sleep. And to paint a picture of how vital this was, For his entire 12 years, Owen could only fall asleep and stay asleep if he was being actively held and rocked. My very survival depended on having paid support. And all of that work doesn't even begin to account for the time and energy spent on his therapies, his interventions, his schooling, or managing his many, many illnesses and surgeries. In my case, my extreme caregiving era had a beginning and an end. I was 28 when Owen was born, and 40 when he died, which, frankly, were the years I had been thinking I would be able to build my career while raising my children. The career part had to fall away, and I did indeed grieve that for a long time. It also left me in a position of complete financial dependency. I was reliant on both my partner and the state to not only provide a safety net for Owen, but also for me. I was in the prime of my potential working life and had no means of supporting myself or investing in my own future. Now, I do have to say that for sure, my partner, the boy's dad, also faced challenges as a father of a child like Owen. But his career plans weren't thrown off course and his ability to work was never impacted. And as our relationship was breaking down and we were splitting up, the boys were around six and eight at the time, Their dad didn't have the same financial concerns I did, especially when it came to self-sufficiency and earning an income. I am now 53 years old. I had about four years of salaried employment before I had kids. I was a full-time extreme caregiver for 12 years and have been self-employed since. Now these days, I also look after the affairs of my elderly mother and support my other son who is about to enter university. So even as I've been building a career, finally, the financial pressures haven't let up, and I do have to keep working at a high intensity. But I see that many of my peers are starting to think about retirement, or at least contemplate how they can end their careers on a high note. 
Some are making plans to enjoy their empty nests. But those of us with extreme caregiving responsibilities, either currently or in our history, we're on shaky footing in terms of career, finances, or both. So let's circle back to this conception of human flourishing and our society's expectation of a right to pursue fulfillment and happiness. There are some things we collectively deem fit to support in this regard, right, especially when it comes to nurturing families. Things like maternity leave, subsidized daycare, family tax breaks, and benefits. But this level of extreme caregiving that I've been talking about doesn't even register at that level. What we do is just seen as an extension of unpaid domestic work and family responsibility, with the cost felt predominantly, but of course not exclusively, by the female and heteronormative pairings. The requirements of this unpaid work are so all-consuming that employment is often impossible, which essentially keeps us, the caregivers, in permanent financial dependency to a partner, to family members, to the state. And if and when the caregiving responsibilities end, we're basically no further ahead than when we started. In fact, we're often quite behind. So you might ask, what do we do? Well, from a workplace perspective, we can consider ways of perhaps adjusting how we think about qualifications or education equivalency and think about employer expectations. And maybe how we can translate our caregiving experiences to mean something in the workplace. Excellent ideas, of course, but I think this would require shifting some pretty deeply held embedded cultural norms. So while super important, I do think that's more of a long game. But we can also approach this from a policy level and decide that we want to live in a society that sees extreme caregiving as a shared responsibility, not just a terrible bit of personal bad luck. As part of this push for a national caregiving strategy, there are lots of interesting policy ideas being tabled, including mandatory CPP contributions for caregivers, universal basic income, one of my favorites, paid caregiver leave, and caregiver health benefits. And these are some of the ways that society can help ensure that caregivers get the support they need. And I wanted to end on this note because while stories are powerful, they can also shift focus to pity when what is really needed is systemic change. So I'd like to conclude this session on caregiving and work by saying that caregiving, especially the extreme kind, is work. It's unpaid and relentless, and it has an immense opportunity cost. It leaves us with few options for income, investment in careers, and future financial stability. I hope these discussions at this summit can spark some new thinking about how to enable caregivers to participate in society and working life in the ways that we choose to. In other words, to give all people a chance to flourish. We're doing something a little bit different with this yes, so that we can have we some are. we can have some uh, visuals with our little podcast <gasps> production and we're going to see how it goes. It's a bit of an experiment. I like I like an experiment. Yeah. Well, so, what do you so what do you? It's kind of fun. Does it feel weird? Because usually we're so scripted. It feels weird. <laughs> I and know. That feels a little. I don't love cameras in general, but I I will do it for this and for you. I will oh. do it. Yeah. You're I feel so a little welcome. untethered because you know me. I like my I like my script. You like to be scripted. I do like to be scripted. But we'll see how this goes. So why don't I just describe like what we're talking about today? 
So last month, or maybe it was, yeah, I guess it was last month at this point, I was invited to speak at a conference called, um, or, or was hosted by the Canadian Caregiving Center of Excellence, which is a funded mm-hmm. entity funded by um, private money, the Israeli Foundation. And they're advocating for the development of a national strategy for caregiving. So a way to mm-hmm. support people who have to take time off work or who um, maybe are underemployed in a traditional fashion, who uh, are needing to look after a family member or a loved one, could be a child, mm-hmm. a parent, a sibling. They're advocating for things like um, healthcare for caregivers, um, CPP contributions, um, perhaps insurance of some other types of insurance of some kind, mm-hmm. maybe even income, other types of supports. So mm-hmm. that was the conference and the stream of topic, I suppose, that I was involved in was called caregiving and work. So it was mm-hmm. uh, very specific to my my panel was specific to parents of young adults who have severe disabilities and uh, the extent to which we've been impacted in our ability mm-hmm. to work and earn a living. Yeah. And um, it's a little different for you because, you know, you're talking, I feel like especially of late, you've more been talking about, you know, your ideas about um, whether it's patient engagement or different healthcare concepts broadly, but not delving so much into your own experience. Um so directly maybe as a caregiver, I, I think you're always referring to it or, or you might make, um, allude to it, but, but this was much more asking you to reflect on your experience, um, as opposed to come up with like a thesis. So yeah, that must've felt a little different. It did. And it's, it's something that I'm very conscious about, you know, in the, in the early days of my, I guess, engagement experiences, I, I guess, as many people, I started out as, someone who would sort of testify, I suppose, you know, and and give my personal story and talk about my Mm -hmm. experiences. And and it just felt, it started to feel exploitive and and kind of draining. And like I was performing Mm -hmm. my story for people or performing my experiences to um, kind of elicit some kind of emotional response. And I just, I felt like a kind of um, supporting actor in something that I wasn't quite clear on. And so that's partially why I wrote the book that I did and why, um, since then I've refrained, I guess, from being involved in a lot of storytelling. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure what shifted for me in this one. I, I think that's a combination of things. One was um, my friend, Krista Hanstra asked me to, <laughs> so I gave it serious consideration more so than I, than I perhaps would have it if it had been more of a cold call. And um, I also feel like this topic of caregiving and work is something I just had never really thought about before. It's, it, it seems obvious to me now that, of course, my life trajectory has changed quite a bit based on the fact that I've uh, been in, been what I call an extreme caregiver for 12 years. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that it continues to ripple through my life or have an impact now is um, it hadn't really occurred to me. And so it was uh, um, it was interesting to dissect, Mm -hmm. I guess, my own life and experiences and try to um, package it up, I guess, in a 10 minute talk. It certainly sounds like, uh, you know, it's it's hardly as if they were saying, come and like, tell us your experience and just tell us a story like that doesn't. So that sounds, you know, what, you know, more in line with um, what you what you do in the sense that there was a specific topic. And there was a specific um, kind of like an academic frame or like something that you were going to um, use as as a structure to what you were talking about. And there was a purpose to this event, which was to have some sort of 
change happen within the system as opposed to <laughs> come talk to this group and hopefully you will just move them. Right. To feel, I think feel that's change. the key piece. Yeah. That's the key piece is there was an agenda for the conference, for the session. We talked a lot in our prep sessions, I guess, around um, what what our objectives are, you know, what are, what do we want to convey and what is the purpose of the conference? And, and it felt like much more of an advocacy effort than other conferences I've been involved in. And I think that's something you and I've talked about a lot with the podcast in general, that these kinds of um, community-based, needs-based uh, messages are, feel like for me, they feel um more worth supporting than institutional objectives. I mean, I guess one could argue that, uh, or, uh, or I guess one could assess this from a number of angles, but for me, I, I could really feel the, um, the kind of lobby, lobbyist activist vibe in the conference. And, and that was kind of nice, actually. It was, it was uh, refreshing. I'll just say this off the top is one thing I feel like this was a really nice opportunity to look at was some of these more um, uh, like, like usually talk about caregiving focuses on how fulfilling it is <laughs> and how it's this act of love and that we love our people we look after and we just want a bit more support. And I think those are all valid and important things to say and certainly things I've felt, but the cost of it and the, op like the co opportunity cost and the toll it takes, I think, um, there's not often a lot of room to think through those things or to talk about those things. So this, uh, and particularly around the question of choice, like most people would not opt to do this and don't sign up for it. Um, uh, yeah, I think that was a really key, a key um, differentiating factor when I was reading this, because given the sort of work we both do, I actually sort of feel somewhat different from what you said, which is I feel like I talk and think a lot about the difficulty with caregiving because I'm around the engaged caregivers and, and, uh, concepts around, you know, changes to, um, paid leave and, and be just because of the spaces that I, I go in around engaged patients and engaged caregivers. However, I think broadly you're correct from a, like, um, you take a step back or you read about stories in the news or uh, things like that. I do think there has been a shift in the last few years, and particularly with the pandemic, to kind of realize um, the necessity, particularly what happened with older adults in care homes and, and this unpaid uh, caregiving. But I think that choice part really was interesting. That was, that was sort of the crux of the whole thing thing for me because it distinguished even concepts that are different from choosing to have a child or choosing to have, um, you know, take on paid caregiving work, things like that. Because we do lump in terms of policy and in terms of concepts around, you know, when we talk about caregiving, often when you look at like government, it, it says, you know, paid and unpaid and all of these things kind of get, get lumped together. So this idea about honing in on extreme caregiving and in particular this talk everyone of children it doesn't mean it can apply otherwise but this idea of choice and I wondered you know how how much you think those sort of differentiating factors are important when we think about policy um, in terms of differences in policy for for someone like a person um, in your situation where you have a child who was born with um 
with the type of needs that there's no way you can work versus, you know, paternity leave and maternity leave. And, um, and, and I suppose also what we might expect is that for aged parents, we might say, you know, that's just an expected thing. It's not something that, you know, you have no choice over. It's just the way that our society works. Like this idea of choice, how it would affect or how we should think about it in the policy realm. You're right. It's it's seen on a continuum of family obligations and family responsibility. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's what you said, but that that's what I'm picking up on. Is it it feels like it's a continue it's part of a continuum of expectations on parents and families to manage the people in their family, <laughs> like the people that they've either uh, bred themselves or their own parents or whatever. It's just seemed to seem to be as part of our responsibilities to our family, where I think we would do better is to compare compare the responsibilities of the extreme caregiver to the experience of somebody who suddenly finds themselves with a severe or chronic illness themselves or um, incapacitated in some way because of an accident. You know, there, there are many more supports for people who have, uh, who find themselves in in dire straits physically or from a health perspective, as opposed to the caregivers themselves, um, who are seen as obliged perhaps to look after their charges. So I, anyway, I, I guess I'm just, um, I, I'm thinking that it's no more a choice for most caregivers than it was for somebody to experience a fall off a ladder or something like that. It really does f- sometimes feel the same way that it's this um, external force that happened to you through no choice of your own and uh and the degree to which society steps up to support some of that is um i i think uh it's really lacking for caregivers do you think that has anything to do with the sort of non-binary like if you have a child versus you don't have a child that's pretty obvious versus where would the where would you draw the line at what's extreme caregiving or what warrants being you know fully subsidized or subsidized versus what is just considered you having a, a child at home who has some needs or, and, and I sometimes wonder if when, you know, policies or, or government shy away from those things, it's this idea of like a slippery slope or, or a non clarity of, of where that would be or who would get it and who would not. Yeah. It's really, it's really hard to pinpoint because, um, you know, you can, you can argue that, you know, every child is special. <laughs> every child needs, you know, there, I, I know of many, I guess, n- I'll just say in air quotes, you know, normal families where the parent, typically the mother decides at some point that they're needed at home to manage, you know, even as their child starts school or, you know, they need to have a flexible work schedule because, they want to volunteer at the school or because the child needs extra help with homework or, you know, the, the other partner is traveling a lot. And so they want to be home to make lunches. And, you know, these are all obligations, I suppose, that one that, that creeps into one's life and that you, you start to refactor and rethink your own priorities or set aside your goals in order to fulfill expectations for the family. So, yeah, all of that is it's a bit murky as to where extreme caregiving starts and stops. Um, I mean, I don't know where the line is, but I will say that for most people who identify with this term of extreme caregiving, um, usually there's some degree of medical intervention and skill that's required to manage the life of somebody, to manage their survival, frankly. Um, Often there's 
a complete lack of sleep. Um, there's uh, a lack of social connection. There's, um, you know, there's very little time for nurturing relationships, friendships, um, personal health and wellness. Uh, so it's, it's an all encompassing give up everything or else the person you're looking after dies. That's, that's kind of what I mean by extreme caregiving. So I, I can see why it can get conflated with this continuum of family care and where, like I, like, like I said, where that bright line is like where this is this and this is this. <laughs> I don't know where one would draw that line, but I, I do know what extreme caregiving looks like. And I think anybody who has experienced it would know what to call it and what that looks like. Um, it's been, it was floated at the conference that if somebody, um, if, if the person you're caring for qualifies for disability supports through our normal kind of gatekeeping processes of, you know, if you're, if you, if you're on disability for tax reasons, or if your child um, is a, is considered a dependent well past the age of what a dependent usually is, then that's one way to signal that there's probably an extreme caregiver involved. And that, you know, if you can tie a person's, a, a, a a person who is known to have a disability with a caregiver, you can kind of paint a picture. Um, that's a little different than just a normal family constellation or situation. It, it makes absolute sense. And and I think sometimes the arguments about like slippery slope, but how would we know? Like, well, sometimes it's actually just like, well, of course we would know at least when, you know, exactly where the line is, maybe not, but there are certain things that I think would, would absolutely qualify. I think one of the, after reading a little bit about it, you know, one of the things that seems to be in the past, what would be done is, you know, offering more services versus, so the payment is not, or the support and recognition is not for the person who's caregiving, but it's for the services that the person needs. And then those become outsourced or that's what the health system pays for. Um, and I feel like through the pandemic, maybe that shifted in terms of even from a scientific basis, like the recognition of the limits, the the particular type of um, needs that are met by family caregivers, that even if it's the same type of care being given by somebody else, it doesn't have the same effects or, you know, other, there's other repercussions. Um, and also the um, the sort of amount that was going unnoticed that, you think like, well, I've got a personal support worker, but maybe I, I liken it to the concepts around it, like emotional labor and, and the amount that it takes to just manage those things. Um, do you feel like previously that's though been more of where, where kinds of answers have gone is getting more services versus supporting the caregivers or? Yeah. And I, I, well, there's a couple of things. One is, um, you're right. The services that are provided to the person who needs it, um, whether it's developmental or around access or mm, like social supports and things like that, it takes a lot to apply for them, to continue to qualify for them, to you administer them. Talk, right? Yeah, to bring to bring the person to their activities, um, and to also open up your home to workers that come and go, and they're they're under their own kinds of employment contracts and are allowed or not allowed to do certain things. Um, and so managing all of that requires a significant amount of work. You can't just let it 
unfold. Nobody's managing it for you, and nobody's doing all the um, all the paperwork and the tax returns and the um, all the qualifying documentation and things like that. And um, so, yeah, there's all of that. And then in the case of a child, and, po- and possibly even an adult, you have to constantly prove the need. Um, it's not as though you know somebody's going to grow their leg back, or or that a mm-hmm. child like my son um, was going to suddenly develop skills that allowed him to be independent or more independent. So, uh, I mean, I suppose it's possible. In other cases, certainly that would be the case. But the fact that there was no way for me to just say, "Listen, Owen is who he is, and he's the same as he was last year, and the same he was two years ago." Can we just carry on with what was like the funding or the services? Every year was a new application and a new argument to be had, um, and also a you know there's a strong sense of having to really fight for the maximum services. So there was there was always a degree of having to convince your caseworker that you need as much as you're saying you need. So it yeah the work is extreme no matter what even if you access the services that um, that are provided the kind of appropriateness of what's been offered as well and uh, the professionalization of a lot of services that don't need to be professional. Well, I mean, maybe they do for, for other reasons, but for the sake of quality of delivery of care, it's kind of nonsensical, frankly, like all these um, constraints on who I could hire, who I could have supporting my family. Um, They always needed to be a certain, um, like have certain training or, you know, be an RN or be a PSW, have a credential of some kind when typically for our needs, you know, I learned how, I learned how to change his G-tube. I don't see why I couldn't train somebody to do that. You know, so it was, um, I guess I'm veering into maybe dangerous territory. I won't talk about that. Yeah, I was like, well, I was only going to call you out a little bit there because I was like, that's literally something you have said previously when we've talked about um, engaged patients informing the system and sort of directing policy and stuff is, you know, how much does your knowledge or your caregiving experience should we extrapolate to broader sort of policy or concepts around what should be done in each Oh, but I'm not, I'm not talking about training people to deliver care to other people. I'm talking about hiring people to look after my son. Mm-hmm where some of the funding was attached to hiring someone with a particular background mm-hmm. when what I, I really mean, how do you get around that in terms of safety mechanisms or or um kind of ensuring that there's some sort of standard or or that the person isn't putting you know themselves and and their child at risk and i'm of course not saying in your situation but like well, there's nobody. There's there was nobody double checking that I was right, fair. doing things right. Yeah, and you know, right. to, to be fair too, it's not as though I'm talking about changing a trach or something, you know, or yeah. or or giving injections of some kind, or you know, the, these were more. Um, I suppose it's you know, like, it's like it, it's yeah, if I hired a babysitter thing. or yeah, like, and it's I'm not like, suggesting my son has the same sort of needs. I just mean. Nobody has any problem with me hiring. I literally have hired like 13 year old kids to come and they took a babysitting course or whatever. And I'm just, I'm cognizant as you're talking though, of kind of this layered aspect that there seems to it. Cause you're talking about the exhaustion of the doing of it, but then there's this, what you were just talking about, the exhaustion of the 
getting somebody else to do it potentially if you were not to do it. Um, so booking the people, having them in your home, negotiating with them. It's kind of like being a manager. I mean, even when I've done it for my own health, I used to say it was like having a second job. Um, and then the kind of lack of what I'll call flourishing, you kind of use that term, but but literally that every need that might fundamentally keep you stable to do that kind of work, by definition, kind of can't be met because of the type of work it is. So you're in this absolute cycle and kind of catch 22, where because there's not really support for you on any of those levels, I mean, I might liken it to the kind of support workplaces try to do. We're like, don't worry, we have a yoga room. It's like, don't worry, you get one day a week where somebody comes and does a da-da-da. Or like, don't worry, there's a care place around the corner and you can drop them off for an hour. Lucky you. Or like, or they're probably offering you like a free massage on the side. Like all of the things that we, we sort of assume would help are not the structural issues at play. And so, I mean, I, I've always been aware that it's basically like we're creating this new group of ill people, ill, ill overworked people. Um, and yeah, it's, it's more of an observation just as you're talking and a bewilderment, I suppose that that is what happens to people. And I've seen people and you've, you've shared your, um, experience and, um, anyways, I'll let you respond to that. And then I may. Yeah. I mean, it's imperfect. You know, there, I don't have, I don't have answers for that. No. And I think that there is a large, you know, there's a, a kind of, um, an umbrella of sometimes life sucks, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a category that this, that this falls under. You can't fix it all through policy or you can't fix it all through, um, provision of services and things like that. But I think, you know, what, what becomes clear is that where, particularly in the context of caregiving and, and work or employment is that money can go a long way to helping with putting back some choice into the obligation and um, removing some of that financial precarity that a lot of caregivers experience because of their work or their caregiving commitments and requirements. And there is nowhere to put your disabled child safely and, and still be able to pursue a, you know the same kind of life your neighbor down the street does. Mm-hmm. At least that was my experience. And so I think if, if at least some of that can be alleviated through payment, through um, health care, like through health support for the mm-hmm. caregiver, um, maybe some um, self-direction of funds and how, or, or autonomy in terms of how you want to spend the money, that you're, it's not all just through programs and mm-hmm. hours and um, facilities that you can choose to create a life for your the person you're looking after, but um, through self-directed funding. And for some people that also doesn't work because mm-hmm. um, it puts all the responsibility on them. It's like, here, have some money and maybe the problem will I go away. <laughs> so it, it comes back to perhaps some degree of choice. Um, like what what sort of level of support do you want and what sort of need do you have? And, and would you prefer money or people or perhaps a case manager who is who knows all the ins and outs of all the systems and can walk you through everything that that doesn't exist either. So it's a, a hybrid approach maybe would be a good answer. And also like uh, maybe comes down to like the fundamental conceptualization of what we're doing it for. And I think that's something that as I was trying to look into a bit more about this, this idea that 
you know, by funding caregiving or supporting caregivers, there could be one like moral argument for it. Like this is because everyone has the right to flourish or everyone has the right to feel well or have work or, or function in their own, have autonomy or, or whatever we want to frame it as. I'm hardly my area of expertise, but we could also frame it and people do, sorry, um, as this is to the benefit of all society and even economically speaking for the government to be supporting people to look after in the best way possible the people who are in their family. Like as as family caregivers, us funding that societally is at every level kind of a investment. Nobody is immune to the, the possibility that either you or your family member is going to be faced with the same thing. And so it's... um. You know, it's it's not just that collectively we're all aging, but you're aging, I'm aging, you know, our children will be aging, everybody's aging. We all aging. have a personal stake in it. We all have right? a personal stake. There's personal risk at every corner, you know, um, your husband, your child, you, you know, anybody could need something from a family member. And so to to be looking at caregivers as like, oh, those people over there, they need our help. It's not... It's not um, it's not a complete kind of story. It's not about charity or about being nice to the people who are less fortunate than us. I don't think. I don't think that's a comprehensive enough view. I think we also need to acknowledge that we are all vulnerable and all all precarious in in different ways. Do you think there's a distinction between, like, for instance, when I think of my son, I feel like I would say, like, oh, I'm a parent to my uh, one son. Yeah, not as a caregiver. <laughs> but I feel like. If my son had a disability or needed to be hostile, like I would say, I'm, you know, I, I'm a stay-at-home caregiver to my son, yeah, and I would make right. that distinction, which is interesting, isn't it? Like, yeah. even though policy-wise, we might lump everyone who does caregiving, there is this distinction between if my parents even, you know, were getting a bit older and they just needed some help, I probably wouldn't call it caregiving until they got to a certain point, right? Um, and what that point is would probably be very interesting like into a policymaker, like where is a point where that person needs support to be a caregiver? But but I even think just semantically, there'd probably be a point where I would flip over to say, yeah, it is, now it I'm is a caregiver to my parent. Um, and I wonder too, if like, just to switch, to pivot slightly to, I, I think a really key um, theme within your piece, but, but I also wonder how that would be gendered in terms of people calling themselves like a caregiver, like if both if my son was home and both my husband and I did a lot, but I sort of did more, would I be the caregiver and he would also help, but he was still working. So he technically wasn't a caregiver, even though, do you know what I mean? Like, well, I think, I think we were accustomed to saying who, to identifying who is the child's primary caregiver. We, we use that yeah. term, I think, right. In regular, yeah. everyday well, language forms, or at you probably have to do that. Yeah. You have to say who, you know, so that they don't say, even parent because sometimes it's like kids are also not, there. Yeah. Exactly. Backup emergency person. Yeah. But you know, we use the term, you, you raise an interesting point. I don't know that. I mean, it would be interesting to ask um, M Michael, the boy's dad, if he ever identified as a caregiver. Probably not. like if you are still working, even, even if you had still been working, like do you identify as a caregiver until like, that is your, that is what you your do. primary role. Yeah. I probably do more with older adults than maybe with a child, but 
anyways, I think it's really interesting. And I do think there must be a gendered thing there too, in terms of how easy it is to allow yourself to be termed that or to think of yourself in that, in that way. And, and you, I mean, you brought up concepts obviously of that are borne out in the data that, you know, women tend to be in these roles significantly more than men and probably particularly for something like a young child. Like, I also wonder about the choice part with gender. Like if it feels like as you had no choice but to become, whereas maybe a male might feel more that it's their choice whether or not to take that on or like to keep working or not or to. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's less about like there, there's definitely a negotiation. It's not like I choose, you choose, we all choose, like we're each choosing, you know, we're, as a couple, if that's your configuration, you know, we definitely had to make some decisions together about what made sense. And um, I knew for me as a new parent and as Owen being my first child, I was all in. I was like, there's no way in hell you're going to stay home. I'm staying home. I'm managing this um, because I, you know, I, it's, it was just how I felt and there was no discussion. And um, I also not, there was no discussion, but that, that was the discussion was I'm, you know, this, this is my role. And uh, my partner was making far more money than I was. So it just, you know, that the question of gender starts long before I was going to say the moment of who's going to stay home. You know, it, it, it's not like a coin toss. It There's all kinds of social and financial things that, that predate that moment that dictate what makes sense. And so of course it makes sense because Michael made more money and I had just undergone a whole bunch of trauma essentially from the diagnosis to utero surgery in utero, early, early delivery, all the trauma of the NICU and all of that. So um, I was all, I was invested, you know, this was my project. <laughs> um so yeah, I, it was, um, it's, it's hard to comment on it in isolation because I think all the rest of society is still set up really in this to, in this way to um, pre or to, uh, yeah, I guess it predetermines that usually it's the woman who's going to stay home and, and do all this. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that brings to mind, you know, what fundamental other changes need to shift to support even good uh caregiving policies like like what cultural shifts what um whether it's from policy to just like we were just saying just like broadly the way that society sort of functions uh need to shift so that even if we do institute new policies these things are more equitable or these things are um you know, like you said, like if we change the policies and we support people, but like there's no pay equity and, and women are not as represented in certain fields and women are overrepresented in caregiving anyways. Um, and there's some, some things that, you know, in terms of bearing the child and things like that won't change. But, but yeah, I think when we start to narrow in on specific policies like things around caregiving, it does start to question what shifts would need to happen to support the implementation of that being equitable and um, and and also sustainable and sort of function to function well? Yeah, and I and I think it's also not just limited, of course, to just gender questions. There's yeah, questions sorry, around. Oh yeah, but but to expand on that too, it's questions about um, kind of ableism 
And what what is it we're asking of? Uh, so in my case, what we're asking of parents to to fix or to act upon the child and to um, try to normalize or mainstream your your child, even in the face of extreme unlikelihood or adversity. Uh, you know, what are the expectations on parents to um, to go above and beyond in terms of um, yeah. It's almost like it comes back to choice again a little bit. It's like now here you don't have choice again. It's like here is what it looks like to take care of your kid. Yes. Here is what it looks like to have a like functioning to the best of their ability child with this diagnosis or um, we should always be optimizing right. X, Y, Z. Um, and that's not your choice. That's like we'll only fund it if it's this or we'll only support you if you try to do this. Um, and that's, that's so, I can't even fathom Jen, like all of the feelings you must have, like, where do you put all those feelings when, if you feel right? Like I wrote a, I wrote a book. I don't you know. wrote a book. <laughs> I remember, I remember at one point there was an occupational therapist, um, who we had, who I really liked. And she was very keen on these tracking sheets when Owen was like, we were doing these interventions around communication and hitting the switch to signal a light so that it was like a yes or no and doing activities around communication using assistive devices. And she was really keen on me filling out these tracking sheets. And I was like, oh my God, do I have to? And she's like, well, the, the truth of the matter is if I don't show progress, I cannot keep coming. So we need to, like, she was basically like winking at me, like show, show that he's getting better. However minute the changes are. And it means I can continue to come for like for under, under your, the program that you've signed up for. Um, and there was a little bit too of, there was a bit of an edge of like performance review for her to show that she was making an impact so that she wasn't just coming to the same child's house for four years and there not being improvement. And it was very subtle, the messaging there, but she, she was keen to demonstrate that she was actually having an impact and for my benefit, um, making sure that she could keep coming to engage with Owen and give him the best chance to keep learning and things like that. But he had to show improvement. And that also felt like this really backwards kind of pressure on me to perform as a good parent and to make sure he was performing as a good, a good little disabled child <laughs> and continuing to improve so that everybody's narrative could, you know, could be happy and fit in. How much do you think that that could be shifted with maybe methods that we currently go to that like, well, that's why we need patient reported outcome measures that are like, this is what the goal should be from the framing of the patient, or this is why we have to do shared decision-making in terms of goals or this is why you no know, patient should lead the versus we need some sort of fundamental restructuring of things. Um, like, do you feel like it would have benefited you if, if those goals or the things that she was trying to show were more in line with things that you felt like actually mattered? It, I mean, it's not that those tasks weren't aligned. I, I re recall saying things like, you know, I would love for Owen to be able to express a preference to be able to tell me how you know, which shirt he would like to wear or, you know, how, you know, what, what activity he would like to do next. I would love to get that kind of feedback. I don't know how to draw it out of him. And so 
the OTs, particularly in the communication realm, had tools. They had ways of trying to train or teach skills. And, um, you know, it's very slow and, and there's many approaches. Um, and there's different things you can harness in a person, whether it's a movement or an eye blink or the way they breathe or the thing they look at, you know, you can try to turn those into communications um, skills in a way. So it's not that it wasn't aligned that way. And I, I just felt really trapped by, by how long everything took. And, and nobody ever said to me, you know, what if, what if the priority was more about enjoyment or what if, what if we look at all of the things in, in this, in, in your family's um, kind of uh, boundary, you know, like your other child and your need to work and your need to sleep and Owen's need for quiet time. And, you know, like, what if we looked at everything instead of just, Oh, what do you want? Oh, I want him to communicate. Okay. Let's, let's just plow through with that. Uh, full steam ahead and then spend all your waking hours doing that. You know, there, there just wasn't a more robust conversation. So I, I think to your point, something, um, a, a slightly more, not slightly, a, a much more holistic view on it that did not prioritize um, this, this kind of almost impossible performance metric. I mean, I don't know when we want to take this conversation to, but I do want to say how much I appreciate this conversation. Cause like, as usual, I get kind of like, I get very resonant with people and like, I'll get compassionate, but then I, you know, I get excited and talk a lot, but I also am aware that this is probably more that we've ever talked about Owen than like, really. I mean, we talked a bit about the book and there's been times on his birthday or something we've talked a bit, but That's like, true, isn't it? I don't think we've ever talked for like an hour and something just about your experience as a caregiver. And that's pretty significant. Like, I think it's significant to me because like, Thank I you. love you. You can take Aww. that out if you want, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a rare moment that I actually put myself back in that time to think about how it felt and what I did and all of that. So it's nice to occasionally dip back in. Sometimes it's harder than others um, emotionally. And, and it's, and some of the emotional difficulty is in me being in our typical meta fashion, like me being aware that I'm not as connected to it anymore, that so much time has passed, that it's in fact an entire lifetime of Owens that has passed since he died. And so going back even further than that, I, I sometimes I, I forget, like I'll I'll have to look at pictures to remind myself or read some of my old writing or, or flip through my book to kind of remember what my experience was at the time. So I, I definitely have recollections and ways I process things now, but um, yeah, putting myself back in those moments uh, can be difficult partly because I'm aware of how long ago it was and that there's something like it, it should feel more present somehow, or it should it should be more in my mind. I don't know. I, 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 I sort of feel. I mean, I've heard that a lot from people who've had children die or to say, to say like, you know, you have a day where you don't think about it or you have like a moment or you're, or when you think about it, it doesn't have that absolute penetrating feeling for one hour of the day. And that there's this like guilt of like, I'm supposed to feel a certain way about things. 
I guess, I guess one thing I'll just sort of conclude with to like, to an extent is, um, you know, we were talking like, as, as I'm sort of moving through all the different phases of my life <laughs> and we were talking the other day about, uh, just work and income and salary and all of that. And I, I realized that, you know, when I, when I com compare myself, I guess, or look at other people who still have their children, um, who are still looking after their adult children or their young adult children or people who have been making efforts to get into the workforce and have been really struggling. I, I know that I've been, um, I've been fortunate in that, first of all, I had developed some skills, like some, some employable skills before I had Owen. So I was a web developer before and I returned to web development after. And certainly as I was managing Owen through his life, I learned a lot of project management skills, a, a lot of ways of advocating for him and for myself and for my family that have served me well since then. So I think I've, um, I've managed to carry on with my life, uh, kind of collecting up skills and abilities and being able to apply them now. And, and not everybody's in that position. Like we're all across the spectrum of socioeconomic status and capacities and, um, mental health and our abilities, you know, all, all of that. And, and I know some people who, whose children maybe didn't live as long and who, whose ex caregiving experiences were much longer ago and it lives with them every minute of every day. And, you know, the, the fact that I sometimes forget or I have trouble going back to that spot, um, there's a bit of compartmentalization there that allows me to carry on and still be, a motivated and ambitious and to be thinking about my future. Whereas I think in uh, some other contexts, that's a lot harder to do. But I think it's relevant. And I think it's an important thing to point out that like, we weren't trying to comprehensively go over, you know, the experiences of caregivers today or like solutions to caregiving. We are exploring your talk and your experience. And um, it would have kind of been unfair is the wrong word, but like, a bit presumptuous, like if I had started to delve into ideas too much about the experiences of what I wonder what about the experience of these sort of people in, in a different socioeconomic bracket or who have um, a non-heteronormative household or who have a, you know, I I want to make sure that, you know, we were, you're talking about your experience and not expecting, and you would never advocate for this by all of the things that you've ever said that we extrapolate from you to right. inform more broadly anything. But, but I do think it's, you know, it's an important perspective. It's important to hear um, the difficulties that people can go through. And, you know, I, I certainly think that um, it's, it's informative in the sense that it's shown me a, experience that I hadn't heard, you know, before. And, um, but, but I do think it's relevant for you to have said what you said and that we make it clear that, you know, that isn't the purpose of what we're doing today. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's yeah. leave, let's leave all this in. This episode was written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Engel. If you'd like more information about our podcast, please get in touch through our website at mattersofengagement.com.